0: Just quickly before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a free ebook I wrote a little while back called Engineering Leadership 101, Practical Insights for Becoming a Leader at Any Stage. It shows you how to grow as a leader no matter where you are in your career, the important differences between management and leadership, and it dispels some of the common myths engineers have about leadership. And like I said, it's free. So if you're interested, you can go ahead and download your copy at engineeringandleadership.com slash leadership 101. That's engineeringandleadership.com slash leadership, the number 101. This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Sweet here and welcome to episode 20 of the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, I'll share five things that nobody tells you when you become an engineering manager. Hi, everyone. This is Pat Sweet and welcome to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Happy New Year. Uh, this is the first episode since the beginning of 2021. So it's great to be back. Great to have you back. Today, I'm gonna to reminisce a little bit back to when I first became an engineering manager myself and share some of the lessons I've learned from that time, things that things that I wish someone had told me up front and, and spoken up about. It would have saved me an awful lot of headaches. And that's my goal here today: is to save you those headaches in your transition into management. And with this episode, I'm launching a bit of a mini-series on on becoming a manager on that transition from engineer to manager and that transition is a crucially important one in in any engineering leader's career it's a bit like career puberty if you will there's a lot going on things are changing and you end up spending a lot of time just feeling awkward about yourself and the world around you And that being the case, what I wanted to do is is help you through that. And my plan is to bring in experts, both in management and engineering, as well as experienced engineering managers to to share their stories, their lived experience. I know personally, I benefit a lot from hearing the real life stories from other people and learning through that. I I like taking courses and reading books just as much as anyone, Um, but hearing those real stories... I think, is, is incredibly powerful. So I'll be, I'll be doing uh, some of that as well. So this is the first episode in this, uh, this mini-series, this mini-season, so to speak. But before we get started with the show, I wanted to let you know that I'll be hosting another webinar with my good friend, Jeff Perry, this coming Wednesday, January 20th. That'll be at 7.30 Eastern time on January 20th. And we're covering uh, a really important topic, and that topic is mentorship. And we're going to be talking about uh, what mentorship is, why it's important for you as an engineer in your career, and how how to go about uh, finding an excellent mentor and starting that mentoring relationship. This is huge. I currently mentor uh, quite a few people which is different, by the way, uh, from, from coaching or leading or managing. Um, they're they're all related topics, but but mentorship really is different. And I'm excited to, to dig into that with, uh, like I said, my good friend, Jeff. To sign up for that, all you have to do is go to engineeringandleadership.com slash mentorship webinar. And that's a free webinar. Again, January 20th, engineeringandleadership.com slash mentorship webinar. But for now, let's get to the main content. Okay, so as I promised off the top of the show, I'm going to run through five things that nobody tells you when you become an engineering manager. Certainly, these are five things that I wish someone had told me <laughs> when I first became a manager. So I'm going to share them with you, whether you are looking to become a manager or are in the middle of that transition yourself, or or you know, maybe for nostalgic purposes, you can uh, reminisce with me if you're already an, ex- an experienced engineering manager. But Without further ado, here are five things that I wish someone had spoken up about when I became an engineering manager. The first and most important is that you have a new job now. Now, I know that that sounds kind of silly when you get a new job. Yes, of course, you understand you have a new job. You get a new title, new responsibilities. The nuance that was lost on me when I became a new manager was the fact that the, the very nature of my work was going to change. And it's not that I left the technical world altogether, and it's not like my previous experience didn't count for anything. It, it absolutely did. The thing is, the nature of the work fundamentally changes when you become a manager. All of a sudden, your work isn't about you getting things done. It's about getting things done through others. It's about managing people. It's about planning. It's about leadership. And the interesting thing here is that you're not really engineering anymore. You are part of the engineering process, but you're, you're going to be removed from it. You're going to be facilitating what other engineers do. So it's very important to realize that, that being an awesome engineer absolutely ought to be a prerequisite for becoming an engineering manager. It's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So best way to think about this is you're, you're back in kindergarten, okay? You're, you're starting at the beginning of the line. You're the new kid in school when you become a manager. And it's important to recognize that you've got an awful lot to learn and that your analytical skills that you developed as an engineer are, are going to be super useful for sure, but aren't going to solve the most pressing issues that you will now face as a manager. And I'll, I'll get into those most pressing issues, uh, I think, with, with item number... Uh, what is it? Item number three. Okay, so, so that's the first and most important thing to realize is you have a new job and, and it's one that you have never done before. Your engineering uh, experience and skills and abilities are important, but do not translate one-to-one to becoming an engineering manager. The second thing that I wish someone had made plain and clear up front is that there is no manual. There's no manual, there's no guidebook that tells you how to be an engineering manager. Just like there's no manual for life, there's no manual for for management. I remember, and I think I brought this up on the podcast here recently, I remember asking a mentor, literally, like, is there a manual that I should be reading that helps me know what to do as a people manager? And and I remember how hard he laughed when when I asked that. And he said, good luck if you find it, let me know. Some companies may have guides to help you with the routine stuff, like, you know, the, the steps behind approving an expense claim or a timesheet or, or or vacation requests or, or something like that. But the trouble with that is that that's the routine stuff. You, there, there literally are certain steps that you can and can't do. But that's not really what you're there for. Yeah, there's administrative stuff that that you have to take care of, but it's the non-routine that you're really being paid for. Management is often there to remove roadblocks, to deal with the things that come up that people can't deal with on their own. It's those things that fall out of the ordinary, meaning to, to write a manual for it or provide certain steps for it just doesn't make sense. All that to say, the transition into management is likely to be a little more exploratory, than when you transitioned from engineering school into engineering at the beginning of your career, and that means you're going to make mistakes. There's nothing wrong with you. That's that's just the nature of the work. It's very very difficult. You're dealing with complex problems, lots of different people, maybe different organizations. Um, there, there really is no good way to do it other than trial by fire. Now I will offer I will offer one. Really good piece of advice and probably the number one thing that helped me in my transition is not to try and find the answers in a book or in a guide, though though, though reading up on, on different management methods and tools is absolutely useful. Don't get me wrong, but it's not a silver bullet. The closest thing there is, is finding a good mentor or two or three. People who you respect and trust, whose uh, management style and leadership style you really uh, respect and appreciate, go ask them. Ask them to be mentors for you. Ask them if they'd be okay answering the occasional question or getting together for coffee here and there. There's nothing better than than relying on the feedback and advice of people who have gone before. That's really what mentorship is. It's not about solving problems for you so much as sharing experience related to the problems you're facing today. Which, which may or may not help you, but, but should generally um, contextualize the, the, the issues that, that you have in front of you. So go, go find a mentor. The third thing that I wish someone had told me, and in fact, I've got a little story here because someone did tell me, but I'll get into that. The third thing is, is that technical problems aren't the tough problems. And, and like I mentioned, someone actually did tell me this, but, but I didn't really believe them up front because the context was totally different. The story here is about my grandfather, who toward the end of his career, he was the regional comptroller for CN Rail, which is Canada's largest railway, uh, an enormous company, really, really big, still one of Canada's largest. And something he's been telling me for years, I remember as a little kid him telling me this, is that the most challenging problems he had ever faced— were were never related to balancing the books or or getting budgets to work out. They were always related to people. And looking back, I had a really hard time imagining this, and maybe that's why I didn't really heed his advice. You know, in his heyday, he would have been overseeing the finances of this company, bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars with enormous, incredibly expensive assets, crisscrossing North America, and... No IT, you know, the most expensive, sophisticated IT he would have had at his office, in his office, would have been an electronic adding machine, (laughs) right? Would not have even had a computer or email. And here he was telling me that despite all this complexity and the lack of tools, the toughest problems that he would have faced were people problems. I, I didn't get it. I didn't believe it. And now that I'm in a management role myself and have been for a number of years, Uh, I'm starting to understand why he would have said that. It's not that uh, there are no technical problems or or really challenging technical problems at that. There there really are. But you got to think there's no system quite as complex as a system made up of people. People as individuals are complex. And then when you get a bunch of people together and ask them to do really hard things with limited time, limited resources, and and add a bunch of pressure to that, um, of course, you're going to get funny things happen. It only makes sense. And when you combine that with the fact that the, the people in your organization, the people that you work with, really are the most important uh, single item in an organization, are, are the people. I really do believe that. Um, then the stakes get very, very high. You're, it's, it's just asking for things to go awry. And guess what? It's your job as a manager to help fix that, and it's not always problems, right? It, it could just be challenging situations. You know, uh, one of the one of the biggest challenges that that I have in my work is feeding the fire of young, ambitious engineers who who are raring to go and want to take on responsibility, and and balancing wanting to give them challenges and opportunity with not setting them setting them up to fail and not overstepping with respect to, uh, you know, corporate rules and and what someone has to do before they can get promoted. Things like years of experience, which I, I personally don't always agree with, but I, but I understand why those rules are in place, right? On the other end of the spectrum, there are problems like absenteeism, that, you know, a, as a manager, you're probably someone who's ambitious and has worked hard, and it's just hard to wrap your head around why someone is having a hard time showing up to work. Maybe you jump to the conclusion that someone's lazy, but maybe someone's dealing with something at home. Maybe someone has a sick spouse or parent. Maybe there are substance issues. You know, there are any number of things that could come to the forefront that y- you do, in fact, have to deal with. Um, and, and that really was totally lost on me in, in the early days of, of my career as a manager. Very, very important. To, to bear that in mind. And because you've probably never dealt with this kind of thing before, uh, some recommendations that I would make, some skills that I, I really recommend that any and all managers, whether you're new to the game or not, skills that you ought to develop. Coaching skills, communication skills, and emotional intelligence. And these are things that it's really easy for me to say, go develop those skills. It's much harder to do in practice because they are hard and you're probably not familiar with them. Um, you know, these, these are not the kinds of things that we talked about when I was in engineering school. Heck w- when I went and did my MBA, we only briefly touched on some of these things, these crucially important things for managers. We only kind of brushed on. So what I'll do, I'll add some links to different resources that you can get access to in the show notes. That'll be at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 20. You can check those out. Uh, but very, very important skills that no matter what kind of management you're into, uh, these skills can and will help. The fourth thing that I wanted to touch on, something that I I really wish someone had made explicit for me in the early days, is that you don't need to have an answer. You're going to get questions. You're going to have people come to you to make decisions in in any number of situations. And I remember the day that I got my first real question as as a, a junior manager on a project. I, I, frankly, I don't remember the exact question, but I do remember how I felt when I got the question. I felt like a deer in the headlights of an oncoming car. I felt, uh oh, <laughs> because the question was a little bit outside of my my technical area of expertise. The situation was a bit ambiguous. There was a little bit of pressure. It was nothing major, but I remember the full weight of the situation on my chest and realized re- realizing that. I would have to start making decisions on things that I wasn't fully read up on, didn't have a a, a great background in, and couldn't possibly understand the full implications of downstream. And it took me a very long time to realize the the, the three magic words that every manager must get comfortable with. And those three magic words are, I don't know. (laughs) You don't have to know the answer to questions that come to you. In fact, in many cases, it's very important to recognize when you don't know the right answer. Now, the, the the best thing to do is not just to say, I don't know, when you don't know. It's to say, I don't know, but I'll get you an answer. Or, I don't know, but if you talk to Jennifer, I bet you she would, she's an expert in that field. Right? Understanding how to get an answer is, is just as important, if not more important, than having the answer at the tip of your tongue at all times. There are going to be situations where, yeah, you, you do need to make an urgent decision, for sure, um, but those, frankly, are few and far between. And it's often much, much better to give yourself a couple minutes to think things through or gather little bits of missing information than to just spew off an answer and and be done with it, right? Panicking and giving a bad answer is often much, much worse than taking a few moments. And yeah, taking your time, and maybe a delay is not always the best thing, but often it's worth that cost. It's worth the cost of delaying an answer for a much, much, much better one in many circumstances. So don't ever feel like you need an answer right then, right there. Uh, Those situations where you do will make themselves abundantly clear. And often we're talking about, um, you know, safety incidents and that kind of thing, where you really do need to, to make a call to keep someone safe immediately, right? But for most of us, that's not a situation we find ourselves in on a regular basis. So remember, you don't need an answer right away. What you do need to do is to facilitate your people getting the answers they need. And maybe that's by giving it yourself or redirecting or gathering information on your own, but it doesn't mean needing to be uh, Johnny on the spot and write every single time right then and there. And the fifth and final thing that I wanted to get into is that people are paying attention whether you're having a good day or not. And what I mean by this is that there's this funny thing that happens when you get placed in a management role, and that is that people pay closer attention to you. Whether you want it or not, your, your cultural gravitational pull, which is a term I made up, but I hope, <laughs> I hope it makes sense, your cultural gravitational pull grows overnight when you become a manager. People see how you behave, they see what you do, the way you work, and perceive that as what right looks like in your organization. Right? You just got a promotion. You must be doing something right. So people look at you and think, okay, I will behave more like Pat. Pat clearly has has his act together. Something he's doing is getting the organization's attention. I'm going to behave like Pat. Now, the way you treat others, for example, will will set a certain bar. Now, the thing about this is that this is a double-edged sword. People will see you on both your good and your bad days, and you're sending out a signal to your team and the organization either way. So when you become a manager, it gets to be much harder to to remain anonymous, meaning having self-awareness and where your head is at on a given day becomes much, much more important. If you're having a bad day, you, you can't just dump that on the rest of the world. You can't lash out because that sends a signal that that's acceptable and expected behavior. You are setting the tone for your organization. So you need to be aware of your your emotions, your stressors, and and manage yourself. Ultimately, it becomes that much more important because through managing yourself, you are uh, kind of in, in an indirect way managing the team because people see that. Now, I'm willing to bet again that you know, mindfulness and emotional intelligence are not the kinds of things that you you covered in engineering school. So again, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to uh, to help you with that, to give you some pointers, some reading material on how you can develop better kind of personal awareness. So those were my top five, the the top five things that I wish someone had spoken up about uh, back when I became a manager. But obviously, there are a lot of lessons learned. I probably could have made a list of, of 50 or 100. I'd love to know what your lessons learned are the things that you wish someone would have told you when you became a manager. Um, so drop me a line on LinkedIn. I'm going to put this question up on LinkedIn. Um, I'll put a link to my profile in the show notes. And I'd love to know what you think. And uh, if, if anyone has some particularly good examples, I'll be sure to add that to the mailbag in next week's episode. Speaking of which, let's move on to the engineering and leadership mailbag. This is the part of the show where I read your mail comments, tweets, messages, and answer your questions. I promise to read everything you send me, and I promise to share my very favorites here on the podcast. Uh, my uh, my friend, Luis Duque, wrote me to share that uh, he recently released a podcast episode featuring a conversation with yours truly. He uh, he invited me on his podcast to do a recording uh, prior to the Christmas break, and, and it's since been released. Luis hosts the Engineering Your Future podcast, and in that episode, we talked about leadership and how leadership skills can help you in your engineering career, regardless of where you happen to be in your career. Luis is a super impressive guy, the model young engineer. He's still an engineer in training, but he's putting his work and his thoughts out there for the world to see. So very, very cool stuff. Again, that's the Engineering Your Future podcast. Highly recommended stuff. Uh, Elsewhere in the mailbag, Jass wrote me to suggest some ideas for future webinars. And one of the things that uh, was specifically mentioned that it would be interesting to hear from engineers on on their career struggles and how those particular struggles were overcome. And I think that's a great idea. Learning from other people's stories and their experiences is a very powerful thing. And in many ways, it's better to learn from that than it is from the Elon Musks of the world who who seem to have just done everything. Everything right. Uh, so a uh, very good suggestion, Jas. I, I, I really like that. And finally, Jenny recently connected with me on LinkedIn, and she had an interesting question related to her recent transition from the engineering world into project management. One of the challenges she's facing is, is where to draw the line when it comes to balancing being assertive with a, a client or a customer and being nice right? You want to build that relationship, but at the same time, you you don't want to be walked over. And man, this is an awesome question. I really appreciate this because this is something in in my own career I've absolutely faced. As is the case with so many things on the show, there's no one-size-fits-all answer here. There's no silver bullet. But the first thing that comes to mind. is is that I don't see assertive and nice as opposites. I don't see them as inherently contradictory. You can hold a firm position on something and still be kind, courteous, and professional. To put it bluntly, you always have the choice to act with professionalism, even when you don't want to, even when you are taking a, a contradictory position or an oppositional position, you still have that choice. Professionalism is always a choice. One of the best things to do when taking a position that a stakeholder is likely to take exception to is be clear on why you're taking that position and how it's likely to make the stakeholder feel. If you can't defend your position in the face of pressure or, or you're surprised by the stakeholder's reaction, it's going to be very hard for you to keep your cool. So so know, A, what your position is, B, why you're taking it, and C, be prepared to defend it in a, in a calm and rational and courteous way. The other strategy that I really like comes from Stephen Covey's book, the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which, by the way, anyone who's listening to this podcast would probably really benefit from that book. That's, uh, that's on my short list of uh, all-time most influential books for me. And the strategy in that book is is adopting a win-win mentality. In short, you should always strive to look for solutions that really and truly benefit both parties. And that's not always easy, but if you can work toward this, you'll build trust with your stakeholders and your relationship will grow and strengthen over time. And, And it's more about being trustworthy and professional, in, in those situations than it is being nice. And if you can look for win-win and really truly try to, to wrap your head around, okay, here's what I need out of this exchange. What does this other person need? How can I help them get it? You'll find that, that even when you want something or take a position that maybe rubs some, someone the wrong way, you've got, you've got social equity built up there and, and, and trust. And if you can adopt that in the long run, you'll find that situations like that don't need to be painful. They don't need to be adversarial, even if there, there is a difference of opinion. So again, Jenny, really, really good question. That that could probably be an episode all on its own, so I really appreciate that. A quick reminder that if you'd like to be on the show, you can leave me a voicemail at slash contact. I'd love to hear what you thought of the show. Uh, Another good way to reach me is through LinkedIn. Lots of people reaching out through LinkedIn. Or you can leave a comment in the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 20. That my friends is all the time we have for the show today. I'll be back next week with our next episode on transitioning into engineering management. As always, if you like the show, please subscribe and please leave an honest review, letting me know how I can make things better. I always love hearing from people and love hearing about how I can do things to, to improve the show, to give you more value. Uh, and that also helps other people find the show as well. For more information and the links and resources mentioned here on the show today, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 20. While you're there, you can explore the rest of the website for more free content for engineering leaders. Until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com, where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com.